Hello everyone and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon and today we have a show on the future of terrorism and counterterrorism. And our guest today is Dr. James Forrest. So first of all, Dr. Forrest, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure thing. Good to be here. For our listeners, Dr. Forrest is an author. He has many books, so I highly recommend checking out his name on either Amazon or he has a website, which we'll post a link to with the show. He's also a professor and director of graduate program in security studies and interim director at the Center for Terrorism and Security Studies at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. He is also a senior fellow at the U.S. Joint Special Operations University and the former director of terrorism studies at the United States Military Academy. So he is the perfect guest for this topic, which I also find this topic kind of fun and interesting because we do a lot of shows on current events, current issues surrounding security studies and security issues. And this one looks into the future, which that's what we're going to get to right away. So to start off with, why do we discuss the future of terrorism and counterterrorism, since it's really impossible to know what the future holds? Well, it's a very good point. Uh, we don't really know what the future will hold, um, but we do know a lot about the individuals and the organizations that uh, get involved and engage in terrorism. Uh, I think it's important to keep an informed perspective about the threat of terrorism, both today and into the future. Um, you know, overreacting to terrorism is inherently counterproductive. So the more we learn and understand about the history of terrorism and base our projection of the future on that history, the less likely we are to overreact to a terrorist attack in the future. And considering this, there are certain instances in history or the past number of years where a lot of people predict outcomes. One idea that really is strong in my mind is the Arab Spring. We saw so many experts um, going on interviews, live TV interviews, um, commentary in publications on what the Arab Spring was going to produce in the future. And to be honest, a lot of these experts kind of got it wrong. They had much more optimistic outviews of what might be happening in the regions that were affected. Some had more pessimistic outviews. But looking at this in the broader sense, not just with the Arab Spring case, once again, predicting the future can actually be slightly tricky and also at times dangerous for an expert. Well, I agree. Um, the thing about the Arab Spring or other things like that is those are discrete political events. Um, and, you know, trying to forecast the outcome uh, or the evolution of those political events is uh, certainly fraught with a lot of uncertainty. Um, but when we look at terrorism uh, in general, sort of a long view, very similar to looking at organized crime networks from a long perspective, we see uh, patterns of behavior. We see patterns of individual and group level decision making. Uh, we also see a lot of, of vulnerabilities, um, both in terms of terrorist groups and in organized crime groups. We see uh, a lot of dependence on uh, competent leadership, on ideological resonance uh, among terrorist groups that try to su uh, survive and succeed. Uh, there's a lot of dependence on external financial support. Um, a lot of reliance on reliable flow of recruits and access to weapons. Um, terrorist groups need accurate intelligence for decision making. In, in essence, they need a lot of things uh, and they've needed those things, whether we're talking about terrorism 100 years ago or 100 years into the future. Um, so if we if we look at the phenomenon of terrorism, 
uh, in that light, uh, we start looking at those patterns and ways that we can exploit those vulnerabilities and dependencies to our advantage, I think it gives a, a bit of a, a sense of optimism about the future. And moving into the question that the show proposes, why don't we start off with what is your outlook for the future of terrorism and counterterrorism and why? Well, yeah, it's kind of mixed. Um, there's uh, a lot of pessimism, obviously, uh, among uh, a lot of my colleagues who study terrorism for the last 30, 40, 50 years. Um, there's a lot of pessimism about uh, our ability to adapt to the ways in which terrorists have adapted over those decades. Um, we also look at uh, the contexts in which terrorist groups have arisen over the past several decades. I mean, terrorism is a very contextual phenomenon. Um, and so when we look at the contexts into the future based on the, the National Intelligence Council or other kinds of sources of information, we see projections of demographic changes that could very well lead to a larger gap between the aspirations and the opportunities available to a growing youth population. Um, there's a long uh, history of conflicts in places like Israel-Palestine, uh, Kashmir, Kurdistan, uh, and there's also these new and emerging training grounds for terrorism, like in Libya or Somalia, Yemen, uh, West Africa. So we, we look at these trends in terms of contexts, and we're saying, man, we're just going to be dealing with terrorism for as long as we can foresee into the future. And so that brings about a fair amount of pessimism. Um, but to, to counter that, um, I, I like to infuse a lot of optimism in my own writing and uh, teaching on terrorism and counterterrorism. Uh, first of all, the historical record shows very clearly that terrorism does end. I mean, no terrorist group has lasted forever uh, or even more than you know, several decades. Um, the overwhelming majority of the world rejects the terrorists' view that violent acts are necessary to achieve important goals. Um, we know that, uh, like I said earlier, groups have inherent vulnerabilities when it comes to uh, carrying out a terrorist campaign. Uh, we, we, don't, we probably know that the future of counterterrorism will most likely be reactive and adapting to situations and contexts. Um, but we know that counterterrorism can be uh, appropriately contextual uh, in response to a terrorist threat uh, when we apply our, our resources in a less overreactionary and much more thoughtful way. So I'd like to look more at the concept of the pessimistic view and the optimistic view. So looking at the pessimistic side of it, what are the fine challenges that are faced for terrorism future outlook in general and then CT? Well, I think some of the challenges are, uh, like I said, based on those uh, projected contextual uh, dimensions, whether it's uh, demographic or socioeconomic uh, changes. Um, immigration right now is fueling a lot of uh, debate and concern. And unfortunately, there's also a fair amount of bigotry involved in both the violence uh, behind uh, terrorist attacks and also the ways in which some are responding to that violence. Uh, in my own view, and I've said this a number of, of occasions, that there is really no, uh, there's no place for bigotry in effective counterterrorism. Um, we have to uh, look at this phenomenon uh, as individuals and groups that make decisions to use violence 
based on their conviction that the violence is necessary to bring about some kind of political or social or religious uh, objectives. Um, and it really kind of transcends any kind of race or ethnicity or religious perspective or interpretation of any kind of religion. Um, so if we approach counterterrorism with less bigotry and much more uh, of a comprehensive understanding of what fuels the violence to begin with, um, I think we can start to have a little more uh, of a sophisticated response and a more successful response uh, to that threat. Um, the challenges are certainly going to be with us for many years to come. Um, but I, I remain optimistic that uh, we have gotten better at um, uh, confronting those threats more successfully. Uh, I think um, based on those those trends and those patterns, I, I see a, an optimistic future in terms of our ability to adapt and evolve in our counterterrorism response in the future as well. And you mentioned the bigotry surrounded by especially current events with the refugee crisis and Syria and ISIS. And in your opinion, how does current media, there's been a lot of strong media on the idea of refugees potentially coming through borders and, and being part of a terrorist plot and so forth. And whether it's founded or unfounded, it creates this massive atmosphere of fear in the general public. How can CT practitioners turn that off so that their skills and their trade really is not affected by that because it can be hard. The general public will want certain things to happen where experts might know that they're unwarranted. However, there's this call from the general public. So how do you work in an environment that is strong and slightly toxic like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you're talking about multiple fronts in terms of countering terrorism. Your, your counterterrorism professionals have to counter the terrorists, but they also have to be involved in public education and, and countering media disinformation about uh, terrorism and threat of terrorism. You, you take the uh, the aspect of immigration that you mentioned, uh, and you look at the big uh, front page news stories about terrorist attacks over the last several years. And virtually none of them have anything at all to do with migration or immigration. Uh, the perpetrators of terrorist attacks here in the U.S., by and large, have not had any involvement with individuals who weren't already uh, naturalized citizens or had been here in the U.S. for many, many years. Uh, so to, to link terrorism with any particular group of people, uh, whether they're immigrants, in quotation marks, or they're uh, Muslims, in quotation marks, or whatever you know, the bigots want to blame as the source of terrorism. I think that's folly. Um, that actually does us a big disservice. And the counterterrorism professionals have to combat that uh, public uh, misinformation in, in the same point in time that they're trying to combat the terrorists themselves. Uh, and that's a challenge that I think a lot of counterterrorism agencies really aren't set up uh, to, to deal with. Uh, that, that involves more of a holistic uh, whole of government kind of approach where other agencies have to pick up the slack and uh, maybe carry forward that mission, that public education mission uh, to combat what the media is, is doing to undermine the effectiveness of the counterterrorism mission itself. And continuing on that line, how would you potentially deal with maybe a candidate that becomes president that had these very pessimistic views on terrorism and certain individuals of certain countries and cultures and religions, 
how could that affect practitioners, excuse me, practitioners in the future if such a person was elected as our president here in the States? Well, uh, personally, I think it'd be a disaster. I mean, I, I would love to have a much more concerted public response to that candidate, uh, whoever that candidate may be, to say, show me the evidence, show me the proof of what you're saying, that the threat is coming from these specific individuals or this group of individuals that you're claiming uh, is the source of the threat. There is no evidence. There is no proof whatsoever that they can stand on. And I think the more that we shove the proof into the public light to see where the threats really have come from, uh, it certainly uh, makes it much more complicated debate uh, about the threat of terrorism, uh, but it certainly undermines the resonance of this rather bigoted uh, approach that we're seeing among the, the political candidates. And that's, I think, something that the media could do a lot better on in terms of educating the public about what the evidence actually says. There's a lot of really good reports out there right now that uh, have really pointed to the specifics of the uh, perpetrators of terrorist attacks, especially in Western Europe and the U.S. Uh, and, you know, even though some politicians might try to draw linkages between those threats and particular populations or groups, um, there's no evidence to support those links. Uh, and I think the more that um, that message gets out there in the public domain and the media picks up on that instead of picking up on the uh, unfounded uh, bigoted statements by certain political leaders who don't know what they're talking about. Uh, I think that's a huge aspect of counterterrorism, which unfortunately has gone overlooked for a number of years. So with terrorism, it's so easy to have a pessimistic view on it. It's it's an awful subject, to be completely honest. It's very interesting. However, majority of terrorism is not nice. It's not happy. It's it's violent. So. How can you have optimistic views on the future of terrorism and counterterrorism, since we're talking about both? What are your thoughts on this? Well, to begin with, uh, my optimistic view of terrorism is somewhat based on my understanding of uh, human uh, individuals in general being fallible and uh, very prone to mistakes. Terrorists are, at their core, human beings. And they make decisions based on information and perspectives and perceptions, which um, not necessarily based on truth or fact. Um, and they make mistakes. They often make mistakes. Um, and that gives me cause for optimism because they're not omnipotent. They are not an existential threat that we have to just run from and hide or be uh, overly afraid of. They're individuals, um, just like uh, organized criminals are individuals making decisions to use violence or not use violence. Um, and they're going to get, uh, eventually, uh, at the end of the day, they're not going to get what they want, and they're going to get failure. And that's what the history of terrorism kind of shows us, is that individuals who have made decisions to use violence on behalf of political or social or religious goals or, or whatnot, um, they have failed, by and large. And so that... Uh, coupled with the uh, the fallibility, if you will, of human beings in general, it gives me a bit of a sense of optimism. Uh, yes, uh, there's a lot of tragedy, there's a lot of fear, um, but you know, there's uh, plenty of evidence, there's overwhelming evidence uh, that terrorism fails, and that should give us some cause for optimism. Taking into account all of the elements that can aid to a group's demise, and I'll list some of them, such as the death or capture of their leadership, the potential 
of embracing political the political process versus a violent means of getting their message across. Um, maybe their ideology is no longer resonating with the subjects that they are trying to recruit or get to their way of thinking. Isn't it fair to say that one group's collapse is another group's opportunity to come to the forefront? Like, potentially we're seeing that with ISIS at the moment. People are saying that they're weakening and their strongholds are weakening. They're not getting as many recruits. And now we're hearing that Al-Qaeda is thinking about moving into Syria and taking over more of the position that ISIS has. There's all this debate going on right now. Well, it's a it's a, a, a fun debate to have, I guess, uh, if, if you like having those kinds of debates. But, um, you know, the bottom line, like I said earlier, terrorism is a very contextual phenomenon. So when, when you look at any particular context where we have seen uh, terrorism have an ebb and flow, in some contexts we have seen uh, terrorism uh, go away and not come back, not be replaced by others. Um, some prognosticators are uh, suggesting that we will someday see a Tamil Tigers 2.0 arise in Sri Lanka uh, unless the Sri Lankan government and society addresses the underlying grievances that motivated that long-standing ethno-nationalist terrorist group uh, in Sri Lanka. I mean, as you probably know, during the 1990s, the Tamil Tigers were the world's leader in suicide bombings. Um, so uh, you've got a contextual environment that enables terrorism. Uh, and even though the Tamil Tigers were decimated uh, for you know, several years now, uh, we have not seen another group come in and take its place. Um, so the whole idea of one terrorism group goes away, another one comes in to take its place, uh, again, it's, it's very contextual. Uh, in terms of ISIS uh, versus al-Qaeda, uh, we certainly know that ISIS has captured virtual and physical territory in a way that al-Qaeda has never done. And we definitely know that uh, that creates a bit of a vulnerability for ISIS because territory has to be defended in order for ISIS to maintain its perceived legitimacy among its supporters. Uh, and here, recently, ISIS has been failing, especially now that we are seeing a more concerted multinational effort to defeat ISIS. Um, so, uh, you know, there's this, like you said, emerging debate now that as ISIS uh, begins to retract and be defeated uh, by this concerted effort, uh, is Al-Qaeda or other groups going to step into the fray and take the place of ISIS? Um, that's an you know, interesting debate to, to take place. Um, I would be surprised if it unfolds in that way. Uh, more likely, we may see uh, a number of fractures and splinter groups uh, you know, fighting each other for the scraps left behind, um, as opposed to a, uh, a centralized um, you know, behemoth Al-Qaeda that steps in and, and takes the role that ISIS once had. Al-Qaeda never really, really had that kind of uh, presence or reach or territorial aspirations in terms of grabbing and holding territory like ISIS has. So it would be kind of unusual for Al-Qaeda to try and mimic what uh, ISIS has done. And looking at a very optimistic way of thinking, some people have this idea that potentially there might be a time where everyone is getting along, we don't need terrorism anymore, and terrorism will disappear. How realistic is this concept? Uh, I would I would love to uh, to believe that that would be our future. Uh, of course, that would jeopardize my own job security, but I'd be okay with that. Um, <laughs> 
You know, uh, unfortunately, terrorism has been part of the human condition for centuries. Um, terrorism didn't just, you know, come about in the last couple of decades. It's been something that we've seen various forms of, uh, whether you're talking about the zealots, Sicari, or the thuggies, or uh, maybe uh, the anarchists, uh, maybe 100, you know, 120, 130 years ago. We've seen different variations of this same phenomenon uh, we call terrorism. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, probably a lot of debate to be had about what the future of terrorism will look like. Will it be driven by uh, you know, extreme climate change um, uh, proponents or environmental extremists of that sort? Will it be uh, driven by um, people who are opposed to fossil fuels uh, and they'll be blowing up uh, oil tankers and that sort of thing? I mean, there's, there's all kinds of uh, ideas and suggestions that are out there in the public domain about what the future of terrorism uh, could look like. Um, but unfortunately, uh, there's really no, um, there's no evidence to base the, the projection of the future that there'll be no terrorism at all anywhere in the world, uh, unfortunately. Considering CT now and looking at CT, otherwise known as counterterrorism, for our listeners that might not know the acronym, when considering the overall effectiveness of CT, how can we really gauge the success of it? I mean, there's a lot of CT that ends up being tailored towards certain situations or certain groups, and they have a specific target a lot of the time, different CT operations. So how can we gauge, like I said, the effectiveness of CT overall? Yeah, that's a that's a very difficult question because there's there's several layers to that question. Uh, there's the question of when do you assess a counterterrorism effort, uh, and in what ways do you try and measure the success of a counterterrorism effort? Is it uh, do you use the metric of absence of major terrorist attacks? Um, and if you do that, is a small terrorist attack like a, a guy with a knife on a subway that injures two people, uh, is that considered, well, okay, they didn't do a major blowing up the subway attack. It was just this little thing with a knife and a couple, a couple of people who weren't killed. Uh, is that a success? I mean, at what point do you say that, um, you know, we're, we're going to use these data and these uh, metrics to, uh, to claim success in a counterterrorism uh, effort? Um, I certainly think there's plenty of data that can show failure of a counterterrorism effort, and we, we focus a lot more of attention on that, especially in the media. Uh, a terrorist attack anywhere is considered a failure of the intelligence and law enforcement and security apparatus, uh, regardless of the consequences. Um, uh, efforts by the law enforcement or intelligence operations that are seen as too intrusive or undermining civil liberties, uh, those are seen as failures uh, in terms of counterterrorism efforts. So we, we've, we've certainly focused a lot more of our attention anyway on um, highlighting failures or missteps, uh, things that should be corrected in prosecuting a counterterrorism uh, strategy. Uh, but it's much more difficult, I think, uh, to answer your question about how do you assess success um, I think uh, if you can go uh, for a generation uh, in a country where there's been no terrorist attacks, but there's also been no major infringement on civil liberties or freedoms, uh, and there's, uh, there's a democratic process, a, de a healthy democratic uh, institution in play, there's the rule of law, 
uh, and everyone is, is upheld to the rule of law regardless of ethnicity, of um, economic status, and all those kinds of things are in place. Um, I don't know if you could say uh, that that's necessarily um, the source uh, or the, the way to measure the success of a counterterrorism strategy, um, but I, so I think you can nest it within a larger context of a successful uh, and healthy democracy in which counterterrorism seems to be working. There's the idea that once again, certain CT operations are very tailored to a excuse me, specific group, individual, organization, instance. So how do you manage that with creating a CT program or process that can be reused in the future for new CT operations, but that is still tailored to that situation, however it works in many situations? Well, yeah, that's I mean that's part of what I was uh, kind of uh, trying to address earlier is that it, terrorism is a very contextual phenomenon. So counterterrorism must also be uh, contextual in response. Um, the future of counterterrorism will most likely be reactive, adapting to situations uh, and contexts. Um, preventative measures uh, can only go so far. As I said earlier, terrorists are humans, and humans we know are good at figuring ways around obstacles. Um, so uh, we will always be needing to adapt at some point or another to the ways in which terrorists figure out ways around preventative measures. Um, so that's, I guess, as part of the, the whole um, aspect of this being a human endeavor in the first place is that um, there's a lot of reactivity embedded in countering terrorism, uh, and that's just the nature of the game. Uh, there's very little that you can do to prevent terrorism tomorrow um, by doing something today uh, other than, um, you know, having a machine that can read minds. Uh, if you've got a machine that can go around and read people's minds and understand their intentions and their capabilities, sure, you could prevent some terrorist attacks that way. Um, but we have no such machine, and I'd be surprised if we will ever see such a machine in the future. Um, so in the absence of that, uh, counterterrorism will be, uh, to some degree or another, very reactive in context. In today's day and age, we see a lot of focus on terrorism related to international groups, international organizations. But what happens when the focus of terrorism potentially switches away from groups overseas to more of a domestic focus? And when I mention this, I mention some of the things we've been seeing recently with militia groups here in the States. So groups like Oath Keepers, Sovereign Citizens, One Percenters, Three Percenters, and so forth. Uh, so homegrown individuals that are creating groups that are gaining a lot of momentum, gaining a lot of members in the last number of years, since 2008 especially. What happens then? Because as we know, there's been so much focus on international groups, in practitioners, in the media, but we have groups here in the States that are getting stronger. Well, that's a really good point. I think a lot of uh, Americans don't necessarily realize that uh, historically terrorism has always been domestic in terms of origins and focus. Um, a lot of Americans uh, started to pay attention to terrorism, I think, maybe after the 1993 uh, World Trade Center uh, attack. Um, but we've seen a lot more terrorist attacks domestically here in the U.S. that have been domestic, whether it's uh, Timothy McVeigh in Oklahoma City 
or it's the Atlanta bombings in 1996 with Eric Rudolph, um, anti-abortion clinic bombings, um, Earth Liberation Front, uh, Animal Liberation Front. I mean, there's a whole spectrum of domestic terrorist groups that have been active over the last several decades uh, here in the U.S. Um, that I think a, a lot of uh, media and a lot of Americans either ignore or uh, don't even know it, uh, that they're uh, as big of a threat as they have been. Uh, and sovereign citizens are certainly included among those nowadays. Uh, I think most state, uh, local, and federal law enforcement would tell you that sovereign citizen is right up there and the top tier of their concerns as much as religiously oriented uh, terrorist groups. Um, and uh, it, we've we've seen... Um, terrorist groups in other countries, terrorists in other countries, uh, same kind of thing. Uh, Anders Breivik uh, in Norway, that was a domestic uh, extremist uh, attack. So it's not just here in the U.S. that we've seen domestic terrorism uh, be something that's uh, high on the radar screen of law enforcement intelligence communities. I think one of the biggest challenges there is that governments need to respond in ways that do not undermine their own public's perception of the legitimacy of the government. Um, when you compare the U.S. response to terrorism with the ways in which uh, the U.K. responded to uh, the uh, provisional Irish Republican Army in Northern Ireland or the ways in which uh, Egypt has responded to different domestic terrorist groups in Egypt or Saudi Arabia has responded to groups in Saudi Arabia or Israel has responded to groups both uh, in Palestinian territories and in Israel. Uh, you've seen a whole bunch of uh, responses to domestic terrorist attacks uh, of one form or another. And the danger zone is when a government overreacts to those attacks in ways that uh, both um, undermines their perceived legitimacy among their uh, citizens uh, and also creates an opportunity for another terrorist group ideology to resonate uh, among a disaffected population. Um, one of the things that I always tell my students in one of my earlier classes on terrorism is I, I ask them to guess who killed the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin, uh, and you know they're they're guessing that it was an operative of Hamas or Hezbollah or you know the usual kind of terrorist groups that get a lot of um, media uh, visibility. Uh, and I say no, actually it was a Jewish Zionist extremist. And they're all just shocked to think, oh, wow, Israel had domestic terrorist attack. Wow, you know, and uh, it really kind of opens their eyes to the, to the dimensions of terrorism uh, as having nothing to do with this global jihadist uh, focus that we see uh, pervaded in the media these days. That's a fantastic example because it's so true. It's very eye-opening when you consider that. And sometimes I think personally it's much easier for domestic groups in any country to perform attacks than it is for international groups because sometimes they might be lower on the radar because more attention is being focused on bigger groups that are doing lots of horrible things. But it just leaves that feeling of how can CT focus or have enough focus on the domestic issues and the international issues because they're both as important, I find. Is that possible? Well, it certainly is possible. I think that um, there's a, a huge division of labor that, that takes place when you're dealing with international uh, terrorist threats versus domestic terrorist threats. Um, one of the things that uh, the U.S. has certainly uh, learned a lot uh, over the last several decades is the need for international uh, cooperation uh, and, and information sharing among intelligence uh, services, law enforcement services, and so forth. 
Um, there's, there's only so much that any one country can know about what's going on in another country. Uh, so you have to rely on other countries and their services and their knowledge bases to help you prosecute an international terrorist threat. Um, whereas here in the U.S., um, you know, some of the groups that, that you mentioned and that I've mentioned already, the domestic terrorist groups, um, there's been a lot of attention over the last several decades uh, in training up law enforcement at the local and state and federal level to combat the threat of the environmental extremists or the animal rights extremists or the uh, the abortion clinic bombers. Uh, that group specifically is, is actually an easier one to deal with because they had a very limited target set. I mean, they only went after abortion clinics and abortion doctors and, and abortion doctor uh, clinic nurses. Uh, that was their target set. So if you've got a very limited um, group of, of individuals or targets that you're attacking, uh, you can secure those through legal mechanisms and through physical protection mechanisms uh, and make it virtually impossible for the anti-abortionists to succeed uh, in those kinds of attacks in the future. And that's kind of what we've done here in the U.S. We won't see those kind of attacks taking place that often anymore, anymore compared to what we saw during the 1980s. Um, so, yeah, again, it's, it's contextually based. You have to understand what, uh, what the targets that they're trying to attack and why uh, and then respond accordingly. Uh, in ways that uh, will hopefully be effective to that kind of terrorism. Um, you can't necessarily uh, apply the same techniques uh, that I just mentioned with the anti-abortion crowd uh, against uh, an ethno-nationalist uh, terrorist group. Uh, or uh, like in the case of Northern Ireland, like I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, a, a totally different set of uh, procedures and um, tactics, legal measures, and so forth needed to be put in place by the British government to effectively combat the uh, threat of uh, terrorism, both on the side of the Republicans and also of the Loyalists. Because you know, we know that the UDF and the UVF and some of the other groups uh, in that context were also using terrorist tactics to try to achieve their goals. Um, so again, very contextually driven responses to uh, a terrorism threat uh, domestically or internationally. Uh, I think the international uh, dimension uh, just relies or, or forces us to rely more heavily on other countries uh, other than our own. Something I personally find very interesting is how groups adapt. And we've witnessed groups recently that have changed a lot. And they learn, they adapt in our ever-changing world. So how equipped are we to focus on these challenges and stay up-to-date and aware both on a logistical side and also in a timely fashion. So we need to learn with them as they learn, because if they're always one step ahead of us, we're always one step behind. Hmm. I'm glad you asked that question. Uh, one of my earlier books, uh, probably published uh, 10 or 11 years ago now, um, looked at knowledge transfer in the world of terrorism. Uh, and one of the things that I found uh, in doing that research was that terrorists study other terrorists sometimes extensively. Uh, and so they learn from other terrorists, even uh, in, the, in the case of Al-Qaeda, learning the tactics of the Zodiac sort of boat bomb uh, efforts from the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka. So learning different uh, tactics, learning different trigger switch uh, devices, and you know, learning all kinds of things from other terrorist groups in, in around the world. And uh, if we as the... You know, counterterrorism community fail to 
uh, approach uh, our efforts in the same way, i.e. looking at other terrorist groups beyond just the one that we're most concerned about right now, I think we, we tend to undermine our own effectiveness. Um, it's, it's incumbent upon us, and by us, I mean the larger us, the, the public and the media and uh, those uh, who study terrorism and counterterrorism from a scholarly perspective. We need to focus on a much broader landscape of terrorists uh, and instead of just looking at one kind like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And then by the same token, we also have to look at other countries and how they responded to counterterrorism. How has South Africa, how did they respond to the, uh, the threat of the ANC militant wing? Uh, how did the Brits, uh, the British respond to Northern Ireland? How did the uh, Spanish authorities respond to ETA? Um, so as we grapple with those questions and draw lessons uh, both from the counterterrorism case studies and also from uh, other terrorists, the things that, w- that they've adapted, uh, the new innovations that they've tried to, to use, uh, we, we get a much better sense, I think, of the threat of terrorism and also what we can do about it uh, and also mistakes that we might want to avoid in the future. And as you mentioned just now, you see groups learning from each other and using maybe new technologies, new tactics. As a practitioner in this field, do you see groups, when they learn from another group, so the first group maybe uses a new bomb technology, do you see other groups following in suit quite quickly or is it a gradual process? How does that work? Well, it's, it's very gradual and very ad hoc. Um, the first thing that has to, has to happen is that if a group does uh, pioneer some sort of new innovation, uh, they have to get that information out there to others for them to, to, to find use of it. Um, so if, if you're a terrorist group A, for example, and you've just created this new innovative uh, tactic or weapon or whatnot, um, and it's successful, um, and others are going to hear about it and going to want uh, that information. And if you're willing to share that information, then you see the knowledge transfer uh, trickling down to other groups. Um, what's surprising to me, actually, is that uh, we don't see a lot uh, more groups taking advantage of the um, open information that's available to them. Um, we see a lot of, um, I guess, wannabes, for lack of a better term, uh, individuals who uh, think they can do stuff, they think they're competent, um, sometimes maybe their own sense of self-importance and arrogance gets in the way of them actually being competent, um, but they, uh, you know, they might try to do something because they saw it on TV or you know, they read about it in the papers, oh, I can do that, and then they go and try it and they blow themselves up before they get to the target um, or you know, something like that. So um, it's, uh, it's not exactly a, a, um, a scientific kind of approach where you know, you'll, you'll sit down and hey, here's the manual, here's what we did, here's the documentation of everything we did, go forth and replicate this and, and have fun and do great things. It's not necessarily that kind of a formal uh, transfer of knowledge like you might see in the scientific community or the academic community. So moving on in the discussion, is it safe to say that some things in terrorism and the overall makeup of terrorist groups will never change, which will actually help aid CT and predict the future, I guess you could say? Well, there will always be uh, one common factor among all terrorist groups, and that is that they will involve human beings. We do not see koala bears terrorizing other koala bears. We don't see dolphins terrorizing other dolphins. Is a very human phenomenon. Um, other than that, <laughs> that one core commonality, 
um, the makeup of a, a terrorist group or a terrorist network uh, could encompass a whole broad spectrum of, of variations. Uh, you, you could have um, variations in terms of gender and age. Uh, there's always going to be a lot of variations in terms of the roles that terrorists may play within a terrorist network. Uh, you're going to have the logisticians, the financiers, the bomb makers, the bomb deliverers. You might have some charismatic leaders. Uh, you might have some individuals who are very good communicators and can articulate the ideology to try and recruit and motivate others to join the cause. Um, you may have some individuals who are just passive facilitators in terms of providing safe haven or shelter or an ATM card or a job at the local car wash so the person who's uh, actually plotting a terrorist attack can at least you know bring in an income and try and live uh, you know uh, a somewhat perceived to be public normal life uh, so you know like I said there's a whole broad range of things that individuals uh, could do to be involved in terrorism and then you, of course you you add on the virtual component the individuals who provide uh, material support or uh, moral support for a terrorist group online, whether it's websites, Twitter accounts, blogs, um, Telegram, whatever it is that they're doing to communicate uh, uh, the ideology and uh, sometimes even instructional information to uh, wannabe terrorists. Uh, you'll also have individuals now who are playing that role as well. Um, so, again, it's going to be a, a broad spectrum of, of ways in which individuals will be engaged in terrorism. And this uh, kind of brings us to some of uh, the more recent research on how do you get terrorists to disengage once they've engaged in whatever role that they've uh, become accustomed to within a terrorist network. How do you pull them out? How do you get them to disengage from that terrorist network uh, to a point where we would consider them no longer a terrorist? Uh, and that's that's a more of a philosophical question. I mean, if you've uh, joined or engaged in terrorist activity at some point or another, do we consider you to always be a terrorist forever and forever? Or is there a point in time where we can consider consider you uh, no longer uh, a terrorist or a supporter of terrorism? Um, these are all uh, big questions, which I think have not yet been resolved by either the legal authorities or by societies. When considering the future, what should we be watching for and why? Well, the earlier conversation we were having about the context in which we have seen terrorism emerge, um, there's a lot of different uh, variations and categories of those contexts. Uh, I, I gave reference earlier to the, the big gap between the aspirations for a better life and the opportunities to achieve that better life. Uh, and where we've seen that gap uh, grow uh, we've seen uh, a parallel um, trend in which the government has been perceived increasingly as illegitimate. Um, and this was written about by Ted Robert Gurr back in the 1970s in his book, Why Men Rebel, um, looking at insurgencies. And of course, there's a parallel there in terms of terrorism as well. Um, when you have a disenfranchised uh, subset of your population that believes that, uh, or at least they come to believe that violence is the only way or it's a necessity to bring about uh, some kind of political uh, or economic or social change uh, that they believe will, will be beneficial to them. Um, that's a trend that we have to look for. Um, we also have to look for the availability of, of weapons, 
uh, ideology maybe put out there by an uh, articulate, uh, good communicator, a charismatic person who could communicate um, in ways that motivates individuals to adopt a violent ideology. Um, when those things all come together, we have seen uh, terrorism arise, whether it's in the form of ethno-nationalist terrorism, religious terrorism, left-wing terrorism, uh, right-wing terrorism. Um, so again, it's a combination of context, resonating ideologies, uh, sometimes the ways in which those ideologies are, are communicated may resonate uh, among individuals in that context. But there's a whole confluence, confluence of things that um, we have to look for in, in, in terms of studying um, terrorism historically and then, of course, projecting that uh, historical understanding into the future. To conclude the talk, we always like to give our guests, if time permits, the chance to maybe touch on something that we might not have touched on or leave our listeners with a thought, final thought. So I'd like to hand the floor over to you. Oh, um one of the things I get asked a lot, uh, especially uh, from the, the book that I did with uh, General Ross Howard several years ago about weapons of mass destruction and terrorism, uh, I get asked a lot about uh, why do we not see a lot more uh, attempts to use weapons of mass destruction by terrorists in their attacks? Um, and, of course, there's a, you know, a follow-on question from that in terms of the future. Will we see in the near-term future a major WMD attack? Uh, and the answer to that question is, like everything else terrorism-related, very complicated. Um, we, we do know, based on what I was saying earlier about terrorists as humans making decisions, we know that terrorists are, to some degree, risk-averse. Uh, they tend to shy away from weapons that are overly complicated and have a low chance of success, because the more complicated the weapon is, uh, the least uh, likely it is you're going to succeed in the attack. Uh, you may not have an opportunity to test the weapon to see if you've got the formula right or if the delivery mechanism works. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of uh, riskiness involved, you know, tactical and operational riskiness uh, in terms of a WMD attack. And then, of course, there's also strategic riskiness with uh, certain uh, support groups, uh, constituencies maybe turned off and be repelled by the use of a WMD uh, by a terrorist group. So there's there's a number of reasons which uh, kind of gives us a bit of solace when we look at that question of WMD and terrorism. Um, I, I think uh, one of the things that uh, we worry about, uh, those of us who studied that particular question, is uh, you know, like a biological attack against agriculture or you know some of the more um, might be perceived as less dramatic in terms of a big mushroom cloud, you know, Hollywood-style nuclear explosion kind of attack, those are much much less likely. But an agricultural attack or an attack against a critical infrastructure that uh, uses, uh, you know, some kind of element, whether it's chemical or biological, even radiological, um, in that way, it could be slower but maybe more effective. Uh, so we've seen a lot of investment now over the last decade in terms of sensors and uh, you know, intelligence, trying to look for those kinds of indicators uh, of threat uh, and to combat that particular kind of attack in the future. Um, so I think as long as we stay one step ahead of that in our preventative measures on that, on that regard, um, I think we'll, we should be okay. Um, but it's certainly something to be concerned about. Well, Dr. Forrest, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a really interesting discussion, very informative, and just thank you for lending your expertise on this topic. Okay. Well, thank you. Have a good week.